Good evening and welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sandsbury. And welcome. The clocks have gone back. The evening is looking reasonably bright and somewhere sort of half light here. And uh, you join us with once again, Simon pairing the last of his hair out as we wrestle with the technical foibles of producing a Sunday evening podcast. Uh, is your Zen more central now, Simon? It's something like that, but it might be more linked to the wine that's in the fridge that I'll need to be getting to in a minute. But Absolutely. Well, at least it's poised. And last podcast before we enter into the hustings, and uh, one of the key questions that we had with the hustings was, were we going to be hearing from current Charles Dickens councillor Cal Corkery? And we took a bit of an insurance policy out and invited him along today after all the recent... Is shenanigans a good word, Cal? Does that does that sum some things up? Welcome to the podcast. You might use different words, but um, perhaps not with a mixed audience. Yeah, fam- family show. So, which family? Cal, yeah, exactly. So, thank you for coming on. A, a long, a long-term friend of the podcast, and um, we we meet you under interesting circumstances. But just to start off, could you uh, introduce yourself? Um, what made you politically kind of engaged, and how did that move you into activism? Again, um, thank you both for the invitation to come on. Always happy to come and chat about local issues and air my views, not one to shy away from that um, under any circumstances really. Um, so yeah, as I said, my name is Cal Corkery. I'm currently one of the ward councillors for Charles Dickens Ward, which is the kind of city centre area in Portsmouth. Um, I live in the ward myself in the middle of Lamport. I'm a council tenant um, and community activist and a trade unionist. In terms of how I got politically engaged and active, um, I have been for a long time, to be fair. I mean, I come from a family of people who are um, politically engaged across many generations in various different forms of, of activism and different um, activities they've been involved in over the years. So I, I grew up really with politics very much being around the dinner table, so to speak. Then when I was 18, um, it just happened to coincide while I was just about to go to university. And it was the time that the coalition government was tripling tuition fees, which was a very politicising period um, for most people that age. Because um, clearly we were now facing having to pay a lot more if we wanted to take up higher education. And um, so I got very much involved in kind of student politics at that time, went away to university for a few years, very involved in kind of community um, campaigning and political campaigning at university as well. I then moved back to Portsmouth once I graduated and my first full-time job, proper job, was working in local homelessness services um, and that really gave me, started to get a real interest in the housing crisis, kind of why there were so many homeless people, what the kind of barriers were to trying to solve the housing crisis um, and really interested then in what kind of local authorities and also governments were doing policy-wise um, around housing. So that kind of naturally led me to look very closely at our own council in Portsmouth. What was the council doing around housing issues? How was it funding services? Where were the gaps? What needed to change? Um, and that kind of also then led me to look into potentially standing as a candidate myself. This also happened to coincide with um, joining the Labour Party around the same time as I left university and moved back to Portsmouth. I joined in 2015. Um, just after Jeremy Corbyn became leader, I was very much a supporter of his um, policies and the new, new direction he was taking the party in. So I, along with well, literally hundreds of thousands of people across the country, were kind of encouraged and motivated to join the Labour Party um, at that time and then became kind of more and more involved within the, the internal kind of organising of the party and obviously ultimately um, got selected to stand as a Labour candidate and got elected as a Labour councillor in 2019. So again, a, 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 probably quite a classic tale of, of, uh, of, of moving into sort of student politics into to socialism and activism. And, uh, and as you say, um, 
Jeremy Corbyn in the the, the sort of uh, should we say more socialist direction of the Labour Party seem to uh, get you, and we'll touch on um, perhaps how the tide may have turned later in the uh, later in the show. Brilliant. Okay, so it, it looks like um, to outsiders, um, probably both major parties. Um, have a have a schism to their to their left and to their right where those dividing lines are is probably a matter for a different uh, an entire other show of its own um do, do you do you think that kind of that necessity of a, of a broader church um does that add weight to the argument for for proportional representation um as part of the option for voting yeah i mean personally i am in favor of proportional representation and i've kind of always um, argued for it whenever that debate has come up. Within the Labour Party, interestingly, our, our local party, um, well, the local party, no longer ours, <laughs> um, Portsmouth Labour, is supportive of proportional representation and has campaigned for that to become national party policy. And that's always something I've very much supported. I do think the kind of real politique of it is that no major party in government is one going to, going to want to give away its power, unfortunately. And I think that's what implementing proportional representation would mean. So I think the reality probably is um, that it's unlikely to come about anytime soon, which is unfortunate because I do think it would create space um, for better representation of kind of different views across the political spectrum. I think if there was proportional representation, probably Labour and the Tories would kind of become two or three parties each, um, more than likely. I think there would be a, a kind of left socialist party as well as a centre-left party, and obviously a centre-right party, and then maybe a more right-wing party as well. Having said that, I think we are where we are. We do have first-past-the-post, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. So I do think that I believe in the principle of a broad church political party such as the Labour Party and that was always something when I was in the Labour Party I advocated for so clearly I, I'd come in as a Corbyn support I was very much on the left of the party and involved in kind of organising around those issues but I was always at the same time an advocate of the Broad Church um, when the left was in the ascendancy and was in power in terms of the party um, I, I was never someone and in fact I think very few people were who kind of advocated for the exclusion of people that we disagreed with um, just because we were we had the power at that time. I think the way in which that we tried to kind of make our points um, was through, through democratic engagement within the party, so through kind of votes and selections and elections, um, and we were very much not supportive of trying to use kind of backroom stitch-ups or disciplinary processes in order to kind of get our way which unfortunately um, now does seem to be the case. So I, I do believe that the principle of a broad church can work with the Labour Party, and I think it should work. But I think at the moment, we're quite far away from that being um, the reality. Um, like, like you say, you've got to get into power to be able to change the voting mechanism anyway. So you've got to win under the existing system. Exactly. And I think yeah, the difficulty then is that, say it's the Labour Party who, who gets into um, power, they then are in a position where to, to implement proportional representation, arguably they would be given away power and representation, um, and whether or not that's the right thing to do, I think, yeah, the reality is that probably few political organisations are going to be willing to do that in those circumstances. Definitely, and I think that, that leads us into our next question because when we look back to last May and as you know we 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 like to try and study the form and understand the way that the uh, local political landscape is moving there seemed to be real harmony within the local Labour movement it had been a very good election for, for the local Labour Party um, you were selected as the group leader um, you know it, it, it felt as if there was a, a sort of real cohesiveness around local Labour and you know, I, I think without wishing to overplay it, you 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 know you won the popular vote for the first time in many years. If we look at the city as a whole, um, and without making it a pun, there, there seemed to be some momentum. So, you know, less than a year on, can you talk us through how we went from that to, you know, you being 
deselected and then ultimately expelled from the party. I think your perception is largely correct in terms of the, the state that the local party was in um, after last year's local elections. As you say, they, they had a, a very good result. Um, I led the local election campaign. I was chair of the committee to organise that campaign and was very much involved in, in getting the message out and supporting Labour candidates to get elected. Um, something which I was kind of happy and proud to do. And again, I did that in a, in a very much broad church way, kind of supporting people across the board, across the spectrum of kind of views and ideologies within the party. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that the local party was fairly united. The Labour group was united. Um, obviously, I was elected leader of the Labour group following that election and got kind of support from across the board to do that. I got a lot of support from the local party also. In terms of what happened to my personal situation, I think, although it may well, in fact, it was instigated by probably one or two local members, um, I, I don't think that was something that would have been supported by the, or definitely wasn't supported by the mm. wider membership. Um, as I talked about earlier, this wasn't a democratic process. No one, there was no vote where kind of local members said that we want to stop Calvin standing and we want to expel him. This was a kind of a backroom stitch up. Um, unfortunately, it seems kind of orchestrated at a regional, if not a national level. Um, and we're seeing that happen across the country. Um, you may have seen reported in the news last week, 19 Labour councillors in Leicester, but about half of the Labour group have all been blocked en masse. Um, it, wow. happened, it happened in last year's London local elections where people, um, in particular socialists and trade unionists, were blocked en masse from restanding. So, yeah, it seems to be a kind of national um, orchestrated attempt to, to unfortunately marginalise the left and force people out of the party. And, and, and so just, just so that we, we understand that, because I say that, so from a, the mechanics of that sort of labour selection process, you mentioned that that wasn't a decision entirely for the Portsmouth Labour Party. You say that was that was more of a that was more a sort of a, a kind of regional thing. So so when did you know that that effectively your you know the 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 regional party was going to be trying to put an end to your tenure? Yeah, well. Quite early on in the organising of the election campaign, the, the local party, traditionally and according to the rule book, it is the local party that organises the selection process. Um, but at the start of that selection process, the local party was told, oh, re the regional office is going to take over selections in Portsmouth this year, um, which no one could quite understand why. There was no reason given for that. Mm. Um, I immediately had my suspicions because I knew what had happened in other parts of the country where region had taken over the selection process. And, and lo and behold, that process was then orchestrated in a way that, that blocked me from being able to stand. Um, and as I say, this wasn't a local decision. It wasn't a democratic decision. It was a regional, a regional, a panel of regional officials who made the decision. Um, and then I was able to appeal it. Another panel of regional decisions, uh, officials upheld that decision. I think if it had been a local democratic process, I would have been absolutely fine. And I think yeah. that one example of that is that when I was blocked and the Labour Party then organised a meeting locally of Charles Dickens members in order to select a candidate who, who couldn't be me, the members in the ward refused to select anyone else um, on principle. Right. And the outcome from that was that surprise surprise regional office then intervened and imposed the candidate against the views against the wishes of the local members wow i mean this is incredible and you've, you've been very transparent cal about what the the, the quote-unquote reason for expelling you um it, it was something linked to liking a group that later on under after the change of leadership became kind of a prohibitive group to like, you know, would you like to share with our listeners, you know, what this massive misdemeanor was that you, uh, you, 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 you know, that, that saw you thrown out of the party ultimately? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like you say, I have been transparent throughout. I think it's important. I've even published the letter um, of exclusion online so people can see exactly what the facts of the matter were. The, the kind of single reason used to expel me 
was that in 2016, I shared a Facebook post, um, which was not a contentious post at all. It was a positive post about um, increasing membership within the party under Corbyn's leadership. Um, the organisation that made that post in 2016 was part of the Labour Party. Mm. In 2021, so five years later, it was then uh, prescribed by the National Party, so banned. And incredibly, the party is applying those rules retrospectively so that anyone going back years who'd liked the Facebook post or shared it or done anything else that could be seen and interpreted as support in any way, um, that is apparently grounds for expulsion. And interestingly, the Labour Party actually, in order for this legally to stack up and not be challengeable, they had to amend the Labour Party constitution to explicitly say that principles of natural justice do not apply to internal Labour Party matters. And that, I mean, that must be incredible as, you know, because one of the things whilst our our politics have, have always differed, Cal. For me, you you you're, you always seem to have been centred in in natural and social justice. I mean, that that seems to be in your DNA. So to see, you know, quote unquote, your party say, you know, forget about that. It it, it seems it seems almost unbelievable, doesn't it? And I guess, you know, if I was to attempt to join the Labour Party now, I mean, I wonder how many of my previous likes and shares would would potentially get me banned before I even joined. I think you'd be all right, Ian, because they seem happy enough to get people over from the Tories. I think it's more people with left wing history they're worried about, it seems. Right. So, I mean, this this now leaves you in a position where, you know, I guess you've had to think very carefully um, about your position in Charles Dickens. I mean, I, I was I was pleased to see the cross-party support that you you received when, you know, when the word did break that you were, you know, you were you were not going to be allowed to stand. But I guess how must it feel now going into an election campaign, rather than organising the forces for Labour, now having to organise forces to campaign against? Yeah, I mean it's a, a strange position to be in. I think. Personally, it has been a fairly difficult um, period for me. I mean, this has been going on now for the best part of six months. And those first few months where this was all hanging over me and it was um, kind of confidential, so I couldn't really speak to anyone about it. I couldn't mm. really comment on, upon it. No one really knew what was happening. That Those were really kind of challenging periods. Um, and it was really kind of personally difficult to deal with. However, now it is all out in the open and it's concluded. Um, I feel kind of much more at peace with it i've kind of rationalized what's happened still of course unhappy with it um but I'm now in a position where i can move on to the next challenge i did think very long and hard about whether to stand um because it's not something i'll do easily campaigning against the labor party although they have treated me fairly badly i mm. think um i still do have loyalty to that organization um, there's still lots of people particularly within the local party that i really respect um, and I'm um, kind of have good relationships with. But we had a, a lot of conversations with, with local residents in the ward and the community groups that we support. And there has been a kind of really overwhelming level of support and solidarity that they've showed towards us. Um, and people kind of repeatedly had asked me to consider standing as an independent um, anyway. So that is, is what I'm gonna, gonna do. And it's not so I'm gonna give it a go. In terms of campaigning against the party, yeah, it's a it's a strange position to be in. Um, I do think though that it's not going to be that I'm not going to be campaigning against lots of the people that I was campaigning with in previous years because actually most, if not all, of those people within the ward are now supporting us. Mm. Um, which is like obviously very um, kind of encouraging and really nice of people to do so. Although they are, are having to be careful because unfortunately the party is now cracking down on any member that is deemed to be supporting me and multiple people are now in the process of disciplinary processes um, because they've been accused of supporting me. Yeah, and we'll come on, it, it, again, it, it it does, this whole episode, you know, as an outsider looking in, just does seem surreal almost in terms of, you know, we, we can throw you out for a crime that you committed 
when it wasn't a crime. It does seem a, it does seem a very, very strange situation, but I'm sure we'll come back to that later in the show, Simon. So the um, the ward itself, Charles Dickens, isn't is also not without its um, dramatic political history as well as obviously its its historical um, links. Um, with um, you know you, yourself, you were you were um, originally the the candidate over a um, sitting councillor that had been deselected for the ward. A, pre, uh, a previous Labour candidate um, stood down um, days before uh, before the election um during an investigation so therefore therefore um sat as a as an independent um candidate and you you've got um you know the previous uh previous candidates of different parties um moving to other other parties how how does that how does that sort of political drama which might make good headlines and might make good um good tweets but how, how do the how do the people of charles dickens feel, feel about that to be honest, I don't think I've ever had a conversation with a resident where they quoted that as a reason for feeling kind of disillusioned with politics. Um, I think, I mean, the stuff recently, like I said, we've kind of had an overwhelming level of support and actually people are, I think, quite frustrated and angry at, at what's happened. They feel like their choice of candidate, their choice of councillor is now or being denied with them by a political party. Um, and that's why they've encouraged me to stand anyway as an independent. I think there is an issue with political disillusionment um, and people not feeling engaged with the process within the wards. And I think there are lots of kind of really understandable reasons for that. So, I mean, if we come across people who are non-voters, well, which about 75% of people are in the wards, of course, we have that conversation with them to understand um, why is it that you don't vote? What, what puts you off? Um, and the most common response overwhelmingly is that people feel like it won't change their lives it won't impact them they've kind of been treated badly by the political system for for years upon years upon years through different governments different council administrations different representatives um, and they feel like their lives just aren't improving and i think that's entirely understandable when you look at the makeup and the wards the kind of the levels of deprivation the levels of homelessness the levels of vulnerable people who are really struggling to get by i can completely understand when i speak to those people and they say look i'm not going to vote because i don't think it'll make any difference to my life now clearly as local representatives as the ward councillors we we do everything we can to kind of really strongly support people in those circumstances and do play our small part in trying to improve their lot and actually, I think hopefully in this election, we we'll, might well see some of the benefits of that of people we have helped over the years. Um, but most of the kind of the really significant changes that people need in their lives are outside of our control. They're kind of national trends or government policies. Um, and as I say, yeah, I can, I can really understand why people do feel disaffected um, because the political system as a whole has failed the majority of people within our area over a long period of time. Hmm. Indeed, like you say, it's one of the, it's the ward in the city with the lowest voter turnout. Um, but it's um, yeah, it does. It's not really that that the, the political drama that's playing into that. It's the it's the them not actually being um, the promises being kept or them being basically let down. Is that is that kind of what people are saying, really? Yeah, that's definitely the perception I get from talking to people out on the doorstep and in the community. So that leads us on to our next question, Cal. So this this election is going to be the first time that that people will be required to produce photo ID or their voter certificate. Um, and this we covered on a recent episode of the podcast. Um, obviously, touching on the, the the low turnout in Charles Dickens, is this something you're factoring into your campaign? And you know, are you seeing? you know, moves from other parties to, to try and encourage people in Charles Dickens, because, you know, the stats tell us that, that people from socially deprived areas and, and, and in, you know, local authority housing are less likely to have photo ID. So is this something you think might have a bearing on the outcome? And what are you doing to change that? Yeah, I think it is a real worry. Um, as I said, there's a lot of disillusionment amongst local residents with politics anyway. I think the, the more barriers you put in people's way, the less likely they are to vote. 
And I think that will have a disproportionate impact in places like Charles Dickens Ward, where, as you say, people are less likely to have passports or driving licenses or other valid forms of photo ID. Um, so in terms of what we're doing locally, obviously we're trying to get the message out there. We're kind of constantly walking around with a big stack of um, voter ID registration forms. So something that a lot of people don't know that we're speaking to is that if they don't have a valid form of photo ID that they can use to vote, they can mm. issued with a government or council issued free ID card. Um, and the process for applying for that is it's relatively straightforward. They can do it online or there are also paper forms, although it's a lot easier to do online. So we're kind of really encouraging people to do that. Um, and similarly, also encouraging people to think about signing up for postal votes. Um, this year, kind of rightly or wrongly, postal voters won't need ID to vote. And um, so that's one option for people who don't have valid forms of ID. And it also can be a lot easier for people as well, because rather than having that one day to go and vote at a ballot box where they may be sick or have to be called into work or have kind of caring issues, postal voters get about two weeks in order to mm. return the ballot. And obviously, if they haven't done so by the day, they can take that ballot along to the polling station anyway and drop it in the box. So it is a much easier process. And we're kind of really encouraging people to think about signing up for that too. So looking specifically at Charles Dickens, do you, do you think that voter ID w could have a bearing on the outcome or, or is it just more likely to depress the turnout still further? I think both could be the case. I think there is a risk of it depressing turnout. Obviously, we're doing as much as we can to engage with people and explain to them why we think it's important that they use their vote. Um, but yeah, I mean, it could, it could well be decisive in the outcome. I don't think it's unrealistic to think that maybe 50 people could be turned away on the day because they don't have voter ID. We know from recent council election results in Portsmouth, there was one last year where it's 38 votes in it. So that could well be decisive in, in changing the outcome. Thank you. So, Obviously, you, you've been a ward councillor um, uh, since you um, since you were elected. So, what's the what's the achievement you're most proud of in the ward? I was trying to think through this question earlier, um, because you'd let me know in advance what they were going to be. And I think the kind of single thing that I would identify in terms of what I feel most passionate about, and I think that hopefully has made an impact, um, is the kind of housing casework that we've dealt with. So we deal with people quite literally on a, on a daily basis. We get people come and see us at advice surgeries or through word of mouth, asking us to go and see a friend or family member or people ring us or contact us on social media. Um, and quite often it is to do with housing issues within the ward. And over the years, we've supported kind of hundreds of people with housing issues, whether it's about um, the conditions of their property and supporting people to ensure that landlords, whether that be the council or housing associations or private landlords, are maintaining properties to a decent standard, trying to get better investment into those blocks. Um, but we also deal with a, a lot of rehousing requests. So something like, well, 60 plus percent of people, I think it's actually 70 plus percent um, of people in Charles Dickens Ford live in social housing. And according to the census data, at least 25% of those households are overcrowded. And I think the reality is that it's a lot more than that because for various reasons, not everyone's always recorded on the census. Um, so we get a lot of overcrowding casework, families of six, seven, eight, nine people stuck in a two bed, no realistic chance of getting rehoused. So they come to us to see what we can do um, to support around that. And also homelessness casework. So we get lots of um, casework and inquiries from people who are worried about becoming homeless or in the process of becoming homeless. And we then can support them to, to access council services and try and ensure that they are able to maintain a roof over their head. So we, we've got a really kind of strong record of, as I say, hundreds of people within the ward that we've helped over the years. And hopefully we've played our kind of small bit um, in terms of improving those people's lives, keeping a decent roof over their heads. And yeah, I think that's a kind of track record that we can be proud of whatever happens come the election and if there if there was a if there was a way to if there was something you could do that would be a fix for those those sorts of housing issues what what would you want that to be build more council housing the, the, the simple one um 
clearly that's linked to national policy. Um, I think there are opportunities for the council, even within the current um, policy framework, to do more. And that's something I've constantly lobbied for. I think there are kind of recent examples of the council developing blocks of flats where they haven't been social housing. And the question I've always asked is why surely the priority for the council should be to build social housing for the people that need it most. But ultimately, this is all linked and kind of derived from government policy. Uh, the government policy around housing these days is, is largely to promote home, own, home ownership for people on middle and higher incomes. I think that level of funding, and in fact, we need more funding, should be redirected towards social housing so that councils and other social landlords are able to build at the level that we need. Um, but also that those existing properties can be maintained to a better standard because the, re the housing revenue account, the kind of council budget that Portsmouth holds for looking after its housing stock is stretched and there's simply not enough money coming in for them to maintain all the blocks. I think officers um, and the cabinet member responsible do a very good job within the kind of limited resources that are available, but it's evident to us from walking around, and as I say, I live in a council flat myself, um, there needs to be more money invested in these properties so that people have got decent homes. And one particular follow-on aspect from that is that in the next 10 to 15 years, we're gonna need a mass retrofitting of all social housing, if not all housing within the city, um, to bring them up to much higher environmental standards. Um, so that's going to require a massive amount of new investment, and that ultimately has to come from government. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's an interesting um, thing that you point out the the local effect of the of the national policies around around house building. Um, do they also kind of drive the amount because there's quite a high amount of student housing um, blocks within 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 the ward as well? Is that is that what's driving that? Well, I think the thing that's driving that is profit. Every time a piece of land becomes available in the city centre, you know that it's more likely than not going to become student accommodation because that is what the most profitable option is for any developer because they can charge people anywhere upwards from £160, £200 plus a week for a tiny little box room um, that most people wouldn't be able to live in, wouldn't want to live in. Obviously, students have a, a, a different kind of lifestyle and um, some of them are willing to pay that. Although we are seeing, I think, changes in trends, particularly with less wealthy international students coming to Portsmouth. Um, we are now hearing anecdotally that lots of those um, places are uh, holding vacancies, so they can't quite fill them up. Um, but yeah, I think we need to change that dynamic. We need to stop it being so profitable for developers to build luxury student accommodation. And we need to make it easier um, and more financially viable for councils and housing associations to build the social housing that local people really need. Thank you. So, Cal, you've made a decision to stand as an independent um, and you know, part of some of the speculation as to whether you would stand as part of the the Portsmouth Independent Group or party, which has been reasonably successful in recent elections at unseating Conservatives, something I know you're quite keen on. Um, is that something that crossed your mind? And um, as an independent, how, how do you feel you'll be able to act differently than from a member of a larger party? Yeah, of course, I've had conversations um, with various political organisations, to be fair, who've asked me to stand under their banner, including Portsmouth Independence Party. Um, the conclusion I came to is that I didn't want to stand under their banner and I wanted to stand kind of as an independent, um, in, independent from any organisation at this stage. And for me, a key driver in that decision was the fact that I'm a, a left independent. I'm not an apolitical independent, which I think is how some people kind of position themselves. Um, I'm still very much on the left. I've still got kind of those left-wing principles and those core values and what I would say are the kind of traditional core labour values of equality, fairness and social justice. They're things that, that really matter to me and inform my political activism. Um, and I just don't think that fits into the current makeup of the Portsmouth Independence Party. Um, so that was the reason I chose not to do so. However, having said that, um, I'm very much open and I've always been open to working with 
any political party or organisation. If I were to be elected, then I, I would work closely with the Ports of Independence Party and any, any other party locally who has kind of common interest with mine. If people are interested in supporting the campaigns that we're running and they're interested in supporting us to improve life for people in Charles Dickens Ward, then I, then I will work with them. Um, in terms of the kind of the pros of being an independent, obviously I haven't chose to be, but this is the position I now find myself in. And I, I think there are kind of real pros to that. And for me, the biggest one is that we as a local team, so as you know, Councillor Kirsty Meller has also become independent, one of the other representatives for Charles Dickens Ward. Um, we've got a really strong local team of kind of myself and Kirsty, but lots of local supporters and community activists who work with us. And we're now able to really prioritise um, even more than we were before the interests of local people and the community, rather than being driven in a particular direction by a national political party around what policies or kind of approaches we should be putting forward. So that gives you more freedom and latitude to, to make decisions that aren't, you know, as it were, were kind of set from the set from the centre. Is, is that what you mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think it means that we can um, listen much more closely to the people who live in our area and act on their concerns without having to worry about whether it fits into the national agenda of a political organisation that we're part of. I mean, you, you mentioned that um, other parties had um, perhaps opened a door and, and um, perhaps invited, offered an invitation in. If um, if things change in Labour and and they and they invite you back, how how would you how would you feel about that? Would that be something that you'd look to do, having been elected independent, if if you're successful? Well, I think that's an incredibly hypothetical question, mm -hmm. which in reality is never going to happen anytime soon, unfortunately. Um, but uh, no, I think see i was very much, much committed to the late party and very active within it however now that period has passed and they have kind of forced me out um as i say we're very much seeing the benefits of, of being independent it gives us a lot more freedom um to act on the concerns that residents bring to us without worrying about who will um kind of national organization or body is going to feel about it um so you know i'm very much comfortable with the kind of independent identity that we've now got if I am elected, and hopefully I am re-elected as an independent councillor, then I will continue to kind of serve um, our area as an independent. So, Hal, if we think about that, one of the things that, one of the dilemmas or, or, or an area that we've looked at many times on the podcast is the fact that come May the 5th, um, effectively, there, there are only two, there are only two possible outcomes. Um, a Lib Dem administration or a Conservative administration. And there's an element of, you know, Labour historically has always, has made for the last few years at least, have made it very clear that no matter how many seats they win, they're not going to win enough to form an administration outright. So they will be voting the Lib Dems back into power. Now, I'm not a gambling man, but I would put at least five shillings on the fact that that if you were successful, you, you you might not be advocating for a conservative administration. Um, so I guess my question is, is you know, the, this winner-takes-all approach, as the council seems to be becoming more fragmented, you've mentioned Kirsty who's an independent, independent, we've got the Portsmouth independence. Does that winner-take-all outcome serve the interests of Portsmouth residents as well as it should? Or would you be looking to, if you are successful, to campaign for something different? I have personally felt for a long time that there needs to be more cross-party collaboration um, in terms of the running of the council. And this was something that I did kind of raise um, a few times within the Labour Party when I was part of that. Um, but there was, it was very much a, I guess, a political party mindset, whereas we, we can't work with the Lib Dems, for example, because they're our opponents and we need to beat them. Um, and I think that is equally the same, vice versa. Um, but I think it would be in the interests of, of the city for there to be more collaboration um, across all the parties. And that's something certainly I, I would advocate for. 
um, particularly where there's no overall control. I've always thought mm. that it's a real kind of democratic deficit issue where the Lib Dems get 16, 17 councillors they've got at the moment, um, kind of well short of a majority, but yet they get, because of the strong leader model, they get the leader, they get the cabinet, they get 99% of the, the council decision-making. Um, mm. so I think it would make sense, and I think it would be good for the city if that power were distributed a little bit more widely. It's something we've talked about here before, because you know, Simon and I, as you might know, love a spreadsheet and um, and you know trying to manufacture the numbers so that anybody gets to 21 we we've we've not found a way to do it yet so it does it it does feel like unless there is a seismic shift that no overall control is kind of here to stay for the foreseeable future yeah i think that is the most likely outcome of this election and like you say probably um elections to come whether that changes i think we're due in 2026 2027 um, to have all-out elections because the council boundaries are going to be redrawn. Um, whether that all-out election, so all 42 councillors being up in one go, um, whether that yeah, is the potential then for one party to make more of a stake. Because obviously, if one party has a good year, normally, if it's just a further councillors up for re-election, the changes are only marginal. If they have a good year and all 42 are up, then potentially um, there's the prospect of a majority administration. But I think more than likely, we're still going to have no overall control and representation split across four or maybe five different political groups. And I guess that's even more... Oh, sorry, Simon. I guess that, that's something to be even more mindful of in terms of those seismic shifts usually occur when, when either a national party is doing very well or hem as perhaps last May, a national party was doing particularly badly. Um, I guess the, the risk is that that all up election potentially can put the squeeze on potential independence. Um, you know, if they're, if they're trying to make their voices heard within that sort of national landscape. Quite possibly, yeah. Although I think I mean, the election results in the last couple of years, as we know from Ports of Independence Party, I do think there does seem to be a trend um, in local politics towards people thinking outside of the box of those kind of mainstream national parties. And that's something that we've had a lot of conversations with people about recently. Um, and what we're hearing is that although people may have very strong views about national politics, about who they want to run the government, actually at a local level, I think people are much more open to thinking about who's going to be best for kind of their particular estate, their particular block, their particular wards. Um, mm. And if that is an independent candidate, um, then so be it. It almost sounds like, because for parish councils, they're, they're supposedly apolitical, a aren't they, rather than par party political in, in, that sort of, in that sort of sense. Is that um, and there are there are you know, things like uh, places like the the Isle of Wight where they've had um, perhaps some success with, with with independent councillors. Is that do you think that's pretty much a trend nationally that where it may be the last few years of of almost poisoned party politics and itself to the point that perhaps actually what people want is someone that's locally invested rather than necess necessarily directed by whatever particular colour rosette they're wearing. Yeah, I, th I think people want people who are going to support them in their community, be active, be visible. Um, and if that is someone from the mainstream political party, then great. If not, then I think people are open to that. But I also think that, I know you used the word apolitical there. I mean, I would kind of, I guess, push back on that a little bit, because I think that to be independent, you don't have to be apolitical. Um, so I'm independent. I'm definitely not apolitical. I've got a very strong set of values and principles that inform my activism um, and I think that is kind of really important and that's not something I hide at all it's something we very clearly communicated to people yeah you're, you're quite right you can be very political without being party political I think that's the you know like you said you it's very clear what what sort of responses people are should be expecting from you because you're you're always quite clear about about your views on things and where you and where you stand um, so yeah, no, that's a that's a that's an interesting one. Well, we'll see how that how, how that develops and and what happens in uh, in twenty twenty six. 
as to um as to how that goes and whether parties actually manage to scrabble around to find enough candidates all in one go that might be half the battle is that simon announcing a comeback i wonder but we'll we'll, we'll gloss over that and head to question eight <laughs> so um so thinking of the future so what would be your hopes for the ward and indeed the, the city and, and perhaps the, the, the country itself and general and general election to come, which seems like a long way away at the moment, but I'm probably sure sure won't feel it when we, when we get there. What's your what's your vision for the, for a brighter future? In terms of my hopes for the wards, um, I think you will not be surprised to hear my hope is that people recognise that the work that we've put in as their local representatives um, over the past years and recognise kind of our commitment to really being here to support people that need it and campaign to make our area an even better place to live. Um, so hopefully people recognise that and will support my campaign um, to be re-elected as an independent councillor in May. In terms of hopes for the city, um, I think we touched on it earlier, but yeah, I think my hopes really are, I guess, for collaboration across the board. Um, so that we can try and deal with some of the big issues that we're facing. Because I think one of the frustrations that I've had being a councillor is that I think the all the parties, if we're honest, shy away from the difficult questions because they, they can be divisive and they can be challenging to deal with. Um, and therefore they just get left um un, they let, get left kind of unresolved. Um, yeah. and there's there's various different issues that you can point to. I mean, one classic one. I would say is the kind of climate crisis. We, we I think, need really kind of radical and transformative changes to the way we live in Portsmouth and, and across the country and across the world. I, I think lots of political organisations are kind of scared of really saying that because there may be pushback, there may be people who don't agree, um, but actually if we just shy away from those questions and those policies, then the problems and, and clearly with the climate crisis, that's not going to go anywhere. It's only going to get worse. It does need to be dealt with. Um, and there's lots of other issues where that's also the case. So hopefully we can see a little bit more kind of, I guess, cross-party collaboration to kind of come to the table, really have those discussions about the big issues of the day and try to hammer out some kind of common, um, common policies or common platforms that people can agree on. In terms of the general elections to come. Oh, uh, just, just, just before we get to the honestly, general yeah. election there, Cal, um, do, do you think that the, the current local political cycle where, you know, the elections come up every year, and I think you, you, you touched on it there, you know, those, those big issues, cars, parking, transport infrastructure, you know, they're, they're all big questions. Um, but I think for most people, you know that they're, they're you know that there's the solutions are you know are are generally unpalatable to the electorate you know everyone agrees we should have you know we should be taking less short to medium term trips by petrol car but you know when it comes down to it the fact that there are too many cars on portsea island everybody seems to think that they agree but somebody else should be giving up their car and i get to keep mine is that you know do you see that as a as as the political kind of landscape undermines tackling those big issues and i guess there, there is that element of what can get that move to the to the top of the to-do list yeah no absolutely i've always uh, been an advocate for changing the electoral cycle of in portsmouth to all out elections every four years because i do think the current cycle of having three elections every four years and um, means that it it kind of yeah it means that there's a lot of short-termism people the administration whoever gets elected in may i think seems to spend about three or four months actually implementing policies then the next nine months fighting the next election mm. um, which i don't think makes for good governance because the, the big issues of the day it needs that kind of long-term strategic thinking and forward planning that the current electoral cycle seems to kind of um yeah, it doesn't seem supportive of. So I, I do think changing the electoral cycle would be useful because it also then, if uh, an administration gets elected and they know they've got four years before the next election, they have got time to to make kind of radical changes to the city, um, and there'd be time for those changes to to bed in 
for people to get used to perhaps things being a little bit different um, and actually see that it's probably not as bad as they feared it might be. And then there's that time for that kind of to settle in before um, the next elections are up. So I do think that would be a kind of positive change um, and something I've been supportive of. The, I have asked this question of various people, um, of councillors across the various parties, and there never seems to be a great answer to why we shouldn't do it. The, the only answer I seem to get is that, well, if we have all our elections, it could go badly for us one year. Um, and for example, one the example that's quite often given to me is, oh, well, UKIP won the local elections in 2014 in Portsmouth. And because it was only a third up, it didn't change things too uh, drastically. But if it was all out elections, then they would have took control of the council. Now, as much as I would never want to see UKIP run council, that, that would have been the outcome of a democratic process. So I don't think that's a, a great reason not to change something just in case you don't get the result that you want. Yeah, and it's fascinating, isn't it, when you look back on that period of history, you know, even the UKIP councillors that that were successful in getting elected at that time, um, there, there were very few that stood all four years with UKIP next to their name. They kind of went in different directions, didn't they? Um, so, so I think, yeah, you're, it, it's interesting that, that, again, even though when you look at the spread of the votes, you know, uh, and I've tried playing this before, and Simon gets cross with me because he doesn't like my my interpretation. You know, if you look at the share of the votes, the 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 three major parties get sort of, you know, a similar vote share each time. They they you know there's about you know sort of thirty percent each plus or minus a couple and then ten. So it's it'd be very interesting to see whether what the outcome of the chamber looked like um, after that. And I guess that would mean that there would have to be collaboration um, rather than one winner takes all. And I guess I should now let you have a run up at it. And when you, because I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're about to tell me that Kia Starmer seems like a, a you've got to pick between Kia Starmer or, uh, or Rishi Sunak as the next prime minister, which it does seem a little tricky for a man in your current situation to be asked to pick between the two. But go on, have a go. Well, you will be surprised, I'm sure, Ian, to know that my hopes for next general election is the removal of the Tories from government. Um, and clear, clearly, the kind of the opposition at the moment, the only viable um, replacement for them is Keir Starmer's Labour Party. And that's something I, I would want, or most likely vote Labour in the next general election, if not definitely. Um, because they are under the first part of the past, the post, they are the opposition, they are the kind of only viable national alternative. Although, as I say, at a local level, I think that's very different. As much as I'm perhaps not Keir Starmer's greatest fan, it's probably fair to say, I think he would do a much better job than Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss or Boris or whoever else um, the Tories are putting up. I think my concern is that I'd like to see the Labour Party clearly as a result of kind of the way I've been treated, but more generally, I'd like to see the Labour Party go back to that kind of principle of a broad church approach, because I think that would be good for government. I think at the moment, my concern is that there's a very narrow set of views and ideologies and policies that are acceptable. And anyone who seems to kind of step outside of that is marginalised, excluded, um, expelled. And I don't think that makes for good governance, because I think in government, you want a range of thinkers, you want a range of policies, a range of ideas. And then within that, you can kind of debate things and the best ideas and the best policies and the best approaches will come to the fore. I think there's also kind of concerns that I would raise around the internal governance of the Labour Party at the moment, the kind of the lack of natural justice, the way in which people are being treated. Um, also raises a bit of a concern for me about how those people then will act in government because those people will then be in charge of the home office or then be in charge of foreign affairs etc um, and we need people who are going to act fairly to, to be blunt but yeah I, I do hope that we get a Labour government in the next general election but I also hope that that Labour government is kind of inclusive and broad and that it listens to different ideas from across the spectrum and takes the best ones forward. 
Marvellous. Thank you, Cal, for being so uh, so frank. I don't think there'll be there, there are very few surprise emojis in the chat at this point, I think. Um, so, Simon, anything to add? Um, no, I, I, I mean, my only reflection would be that it's kind of what what you what you see in effective uh, teams in industry is a diversity of views to give you to get you to the best result and to find to find all the alternative solutions to a particular problem and then find the best one um, and execute it. Um, it does seem that, and whether that's driven by first past the post or, or by other things of, of internal party dynamics, um, it seems that political parties, or at least the two major political parties, um, don't seem to bear that in mind when they're talking about inclusion and diversity. They don't, they, they, they see that as something different rather than actually a diversity of views like you say so you can you can arrive at um, an effective solution um from all of the all of the pool of the minds that are available so um yeah that's a yeah interesting one um but yeah thank you uh, thank you for that cal um was there anything else that you um you wanted to say before um before we wind up we're gonna tease about next week's episode and remind people about the uh, about voter id before we go Right, no, just to thank you both for kind of, I guess, all the time and effort you put into trying to put a spotlight on the local political scene in Portsmouth. I think it's uh, kind of really appreciated and, and really valuable work. I'm looking forward to the Charles Dickens hustings that you're going to be putting forward. So hopefully um, all the candidates will come forward and participate in that process. So again, we get that kind of diversity of views and opinions and then the voting public can, can watch and make up their minds about who they think is best place to be their representative. Indeed, and, and thank you for, for signing up to that. So, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, we've got our first hustings, uh, ward hustings of 2023 um, will be the Charles Dickens hustings next weekend. Um, so that'll be live uh, streamed on YouTube, uh, Twitter and Facebook at 627. Um, at the moment, we've got two candidates uh, signed up. Um, we're waiting to hear back from uh, from the Labour candidate and from the uh, and from the Conservative candidate. Um, but yes, as Cal says, the more that the more that are there, the best. Um, and we just want to make sure that um, the voters in Charles Dickens ward and indeed in any other ward in the city get a chance to hear what what the different candidates have got to say and all answering the same questions. Um, so um, so that's kind of our view. If you're a candidate in the in May's local elections, uh, then please do um, do just get in touch with us to let us know that you're interested in taking part. Um, either message us on Facebook or you can email studio at pppodcast.uk. So that's studio at pppodcast.uk. Um, you can also find those contact details on our Facebook and on our website. Uh, but yes, please, uh, please do uh, take part. Um, and just to remind everybody, if you're intending to vote in person on May the 4th, you will need photo ID. If you're not sure what that is, um, there are links uh, to the information on the Electoral Commission's website on our website, which was the um, the QR code in the top left hand, uh, sorry, yep, top left hand corner of the of the screen. Um, follow those links. Um, you don't need ID in this election, as Cal said, uh, to vote by post, um, and you need to register to vote by post by um, by April the eighteenth. If you're not registered to vote at all in this election, your last date uh, to make an application is April the 17th. Um, but if you don't have photo ID and are intending to vote in person, um, then also, as, as Cal said, then you can apply for a, a free voter authority certificate. You can apply online or you can do it and uh, download the form and do it by paper. But obviously it's quicker online um, and you'll get a voter authority certificate. It's completely free. Um, I did one uh, to test it. I applied on the Saturday and received it in the post on the Thursday. So um, there is no reason that, um, that that should be a barrier. Please do make sure that you have what you need to vote. And if you have registered to vote by post and you've not sent it in in time, you can pop that into a, um, a polling station in any ward in the city um, on polling day. It just needs to make its way to the council um, by 10, by 10 o'clock. So uh, do uh, do bear those things in mind. Marvellous. So you've been listening to the Pompey Politics podcast. I've been Ian Tiny Morris. And our guest has been. Uh, and I've been Simon Sansbury.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. If you want to make sure you get notifications about upcoming shows and get to know when we're live, we normally broadcast live 6.27pm on a Sunday evening, then follow us on Facebook at Pompey Politics Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Pompey Politics One. Please, if you'd like to, feel free to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can even ask Alexa to play the podcast for you. Alexa, play the latest episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. Getting Pompey Politics Podcast from Amazon Music. Alexa, the latest episode. stop. See? It's easy. <laughs>